Our Bible reading this morning will be taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'll read Ephesians 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 6. And I'm reading over the chapter mark on purpose because this is like a turning point in Ephesians. Uh, up to this point, Paul has been speaking to the Ephesians in the indicative. Now he's going to move to the imperative. And what I mean by that is, up till now in Ephesians, he's been talking about the things that God has done for us. And now he's going to tell the Ephesians, here's how a child of God lives. Here are the things you should do. Listen, and you'll be able to hear the turn. Paul says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all God's holy people, to grasp how wide and long, how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. So, you LaGrave people out there, those of you who are watching this who are members, you know that LaGrave is a pretty orderly church. We like to make plans, and we like to stick to those plans. So, for example, uh, I plan my sermon series well in advance, and, and I stick to my sermon series. I don't generally change what I'm going to preach on. We don't change what we're going to preach on uh, based on current events. I think one time, one time, in my seven years have I stopped a series and started a sermon based on something that was happening in the world. Today is the second time I will do that. Today, I will take some time to reflect on something else. Today, I want to reflect on what I sense is the growing spirit of our times, our community, and our church. It seems to me, and I know I'm not alone in this because I talk to other people, that there has been a change of spirit, a change in the way people feel, especially over the last four to six weeks. When our COVID isolation started, when this pandemic began, we were all anxious, we were all worried, um, we were all uncertain about what was going to happen, but I think we were pretty much all together. We quarantined, we all learned to Zoom, we learned these new strategies for coping, and we said to ourselves, even though we obviously 
disagreed about some things about this pandemic, we said to ourselves, together, let's do this. We can get through this. And we did pretty well. It took a long time, it was March, April, and all the way into May, and we're starting to get restless. But it also seemed like we were, we were, we were doing it. The, 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 the cases were going down. The curve was flattening. In Michigan, the governor was talking about, you know, maybe opening up churches and other things on the July 4th weekend. We actually made plans. We made a video, the staff, we made a video for people to come back to church. We put up ropes. We, we, we were ready to release this video to welcome you back to this space. It seemed like there was light at the end of the tunnel. And then the tunnel collapsed. Cases started to go up. Everything started to get pulled back, and now we have no idea when we will finally gather here again and what that will look like. And all this uncertainty and all this time has changed people's moods. People are restless, and they're getting more and more cranky. I'm cranky. I'm more short-tempered than normal. And maybe that's true of you, too. Maybe you find yourself snapping at the people close to you. I know maybe it's not anger that you express your anxiety through. Maybe it's something else. Maybe your emotions are closer to the surface than usual. You'll find yourself crying about things that usually don't make you cry. Or maybe you're just having a terrible hard time sleeping. One of the signs that I see of how stressed out we are is the way people are driving. It feels to me like over the last three months, I've seen more crazy diving than I ever have at any time point in my lifetime, driving down Burton Street and going 40, which is already too fast, which is how fast I drive, and people passing me in that center lane at 60 miles an hour. Crazy stuff, ludicrous speed. The other day, I was on uh, 131. I was just driving through the middle of Grand Rapids, and I was driving and just um, following the flow of traffic, right? I wasn't looking at my speedometer. I was just following the flow of traffic at 131 in the middle of Grand Rapids. And I looked down at my speedometer. I was doing almost 90. What is going on? You feel the restlessness in the church too. The emails are more strident. When people speak up, at meetings, even Zoom meetings, their voices are raised a little higher. And I think I can share with you over the last three months, I've got more anonymous mail than I have in the rest of my ministry put together. And the whole staff is feeling the pressure. And it's not us, you know, saying that we have it especially bad. It's just us as another example of how everybody's feeling out of sorts. The whole staff is feeling the pressure, so much so that uh, we had a special um, staff meeting this Monday. Usually we gather to do business. This time we had a little retreat. And we sat down and we just looked at each other and we said, how are we feeling about what's going on at LaGrave? How are we feeling ourselves in our place in this ministry? Where are our hearts? Where are our spirits? And we all admitted we were disoriented. We felt dislocated. We could feel really heavily all the problems, but we had a hard time feeling the joy and the connection. 
Every day we were trying to do the right thing, but we weren't at all sure if we were doing the right thing. We didn't know what the right thing was. We didn't even agree amongst each other what the right thing is. And all of this leaves us disconcerted and feeling out of place. And I know that we are not alone in this. I know that you guys feel this too. Here's a question that got asked at our meeting, which I'll ask you. I think it's a good question. How has your relationship with the institutions in your life changed over the last year? You know, think of the institutions, things like family, church, school, your job, and your country, your society. A year ago compared to now, as your relationship with these institutions, and these institutions are really important. When your family, when your church, when your school is stable and good, you feel stable and good, right? You feel rooted. You feel like you're in place. Has your relationship with these institutions got better or worse over the last year? Do you trust them more? Or do you trust them less? Are you irritated by things happening at your job? Do you hear what your church is doing and do you shake your head? Do you worry about your schools? Do you wonder where your country is headed? Is that all that more or less sharp than it was a year ago? I don't need you sitting in front of me to know the answer. On that same Monday, when we had our special staff meeting, trying to just get a sense of where we were, I did my regular devotions. And the text that I happened to come to, the one that was next for me, is Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6. And as I listened to the words that Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was giving to me, it seemed to me that the Spirit was pushing me to put aside my regular sermon series, the one on apologetics, and preach on this text. Because it was just the right sort of text for these times. And as I reflected on it this week, I think Paul is broadly saying two things to us who are stressed out, who are restless, who are disoriented by the times that we're living in. Two things. First thing Paul is telling us stressed out people to do is to go and stand on the shore of the sea. Go stand on the shore of the sea, says Paul. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, I didn't, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that anywhere in the text. I didn't hear anything about water in the text. And you're right, let me explain. I already said that chapter 4 is a turning point in the book of Ephesians. It goes from indicative to imperative. Paul has been, not been telling us to do anything in the first three chapters. He doesn't say do this or do that. He only wants to show us things. He wants us to know things. He wants to see what God has done. And it is only after chapter 4 that he changes. What is it that Paul wants us to see and know in chapters 1 through 3? Well, specifically, he wants us to know and to see the grand unity, the grand unifying plan of God that he is working out through Jesus Christ as our Lord. He wants to see God's grand unity. Chapter 1, Paul says that he has learned, the Spirit has made known to him the mystery of God's will. What is this mystery of God's will? What is this thing that God has revealed to him? That God is going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. 
Everything's going to be unified in Christ. Christ will defeat the powers and everything in heaven and earth will be under his feet. This grand unifying plan, unity. And then in chapter 2, he says that that unity is already starting to be visible in the church. Jews and Gentiles are coming together. The dividing wall of hostility that used to separate them have been brought together through the grace of Christ. We are being brought together into a new family, a new household with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Unity happening all around us, says Paul. And he's really, really excited about this grand unifying message. He, if you read uh, chapters 1 and 2, and I encourage you to do that, you can hear that Paul is kind of gushing. He's raving. He writes in run-on sentences. There's a sentence in chapter 1 that is 12 verses long. Paul is approximately as excited as a Detroit Tigers fan after Kirk Gibson hit his second home run in game five of the 1984 World Series. And if any of you are Tigers fans and lived through that, you know that's really excited. That's how excited Paul is here in this passage. He's so excited about this grand vision. And then, in chapter three, Paul brings us to the seashore. In chapter 3, Paul shows us the heart of God. He wants to show us the heart of God, to show us why in the heart of God, what it is in the heart of God that makes him want to bring all things together. Paul shows us what it is in the heart of God that would allow him to give his one and only son to die so that we could be brought together and made whole. Paul lifts the curtain We look into the heart of God and we see this enormous ocean, this glittering expanse of God's love for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at it, says Paul. Look at that ocean of love. It's magnificent. Look at how strong it is. Look at how deep it is. I want you to grasp how wide and long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. Look at it. I want you to know this love which surpasses knowledge so that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at it, it's so beautiful. Look at how strong it is. Nothing can stop this stuff. And it's all poured out for you. And as we're standing there on the shore of the sea, looking at this ocean of God's love, Paul gets so excited that he starts to sing. Now to him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations. Amen. Paul goes charismatic. What is this like? Linda, my wife, and I sometimes go for our vacations for short trips up to Empire, Michigan. And we camp up there. We like to go for, to Joe's Friendly Tavern for a hamburger once in a while. And, and one of the places we like to walk when we are there is the Empire Bluff Trail. Maybe some of you know that trail. It starts, it goes through the woods in a bluff high above Lake Michigan. And it starts and you have to walk through the woods for about three quarters of a mile to get to the end of the trail. And it's a beautiful walk. There's some dangers along the way. Lots of poison ivy. And we notice that it's all 
around the benches, so you've got to be really careful, and around the fences. And of course, there's mosquitoes, and there are the ticks. But as you make this journey, as you go through that three-quarters of a mile, you come to a place where the path turns, and the trees open up, and you find yourself high on the top of a dune, 300 feet above the water, and down below you, blue and beautiful and sparkling in the afternoon sun, is the expanse of Lake Michigan. And when you come to that point in the trail, you can't help but stop and get a little bit quiet and take it in and say, man, we live in a beautiful state. At the end of chapter 3, Paul, it's like he's taking us on the theological version of the Empire Bluff Trail. Through the heavy woods of this theology, beautiful theology, and then he comes to the end of chapter 3, and things open up, and we see the enormous sea of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, and we say, man, we serve a good God. No matter how stressed we are, we stop, and let this love fill us. I know that for me, and I suspect for you, that in these COVID times where you feel restless, where you feel dislocated, there is nothing more important than finding a way to come to that seashore and to see that love that has been spilled for you. That's the first thing Paul wants us to see. After showing us this great vision of what God has done for us in Jesus, Paul turns and calls us to do something. He starts to go towards the imperative. What is it that Paul wants us to do? Well, he wants us to live out of that grand vision of unity. God has this grand vision of unity. He wants us to be people who also live for that unity, who live, whose lives are for the, the fellowship of God's people. Make every effort, says Paul, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Don't take your unity for granted. Don't take your community for granted. Jesus died and gave his blood to create this community. You should be willing to shed a few blood, shed some tears and shed a little blood and make some sacrifices for the sake of this community. And in verse 2, specifically now, Paul holds up four virtues that would characterize someone who is filled with the Spirit of God and who is walking in the way, walking in the will of God. And all four of those virtues, you'll notice in verse 2, are community-building virtues. They're all about community. And not only that, they're the kind of community virtues that call you to sacrifice yourself, sacrifice what you want, sacrifice what you think for the sake of the entire community. Let's look at them one by one, and let me show you how that's true. Humility is the first one in, chat, in verse 2. Humility. I may think that I know what's true and what's false. Now, I have very strong opinions about what's right and wrong and what people should do or not. But when my brother comes to me, because I'm a humble person, if I have this virtue in me, if I know that I'm a broken person and don't always see all things clearly, when my brother comes to me and offers a different opinion, instead of shouting him down or smashing him down, I listen, thinking that perhaps I have something to learn Humility doesn't mean you never stake 
or say your opinion, it does mean that you are willing to sacrifice to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Gentleness. Gentleness is about how we exercise power. We all have some power. And we think we know what needs to be done, so we want to maybe exercise our full force in that area. But when we are gentle, we realize that if we exercise our full force, something might break, someone might get hurt. So we restrain that power for the sake of the community. Gentleness doesn't mean that you don't ever exercise force, but it does mean that you're willing to make sacrifices for the sake of the larger community. Patience. Patience has to do with time. I have a schedule. I've made a plan. I think I know how things should go, and I think I know how fast they should go. I want them to go on this schedule, but my sister who's standing beside me, she's not so sure. She wants to go slower. She needs more time. And so, for her sake, I slow down. Patience doesn't mean that you never push the pace, but it means that you are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Forbearance. My fellow church member is a difficult person. They are not easy to get along with. They have prickly edges. And sometimes when those edges prick me, it hurts. But instead of lashing out against them, instead of instantly calling them out, I sometimes just absorb that. I take it in so that my and me and my sister, me and my brother, can stay in fellowship. Forbearance doesn't mean that you never call out your brother or your sister, never challenge them or confront them, but it does mean that you're willing to make sacrifices for the sake of the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. How important are these kinds of habits in our world today? As we feel institutions fraying, as we feel relationships get more thin, these are the kinds of virtues, these sacrificial virtues are the kind of virtues that thicken things, that bring us together. We need them so, so badly. And I urge you to make every effort to practice these virtues so that we may have unity. How are we doing at these virtues? Are we practicing them? If I'm honest, I think the answer is that we're just doing okay. Paul does not conclude this passage with more stuff for us to do by urging us to do anything. He finishes with one more glance towards the glittering sea of God's love. Did you notice how many times the word one shows up in verses four through six of our passage? You can count them. It's worth doing. It's the same number in Greek as it is in English, and there are seven of them. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 seven times. That's a weighty number, as you know. Do you think it's an accident? Do you think Paul just happened to choose seven times? Or do you think seven times is his way of saying, 
God's unity shall surely be, and I call you to be people of deep unity. May the Spirit fill all of us as we navigate these hard times together. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your church. Lord, you spilled your blood for it. Lord Jesus, you gave yourself for this church and you've already sustained this church through many dangers, toils, and snares. Lord, there are so many times where um, we faced obstacles, where we faced uh, our own sinfulness and our own missteps. And, and through all of those things, Lord, you've held us together. You've kept your church going for 2,000 years. May that great ocean of your grace that sustains us be something that gives us comfort and hope as we continue to walk through these troubled times. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.